0: If you would, turn in your uh, Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. We're not going to be reading the the verses that are underneath there, but it's on page 867 in the Pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, that's a gift from us to you. Feel free to take it with you if you don't have a Bible. But again, if you would, turn into Luke chapter 9, verses 28. We're just going to be looking at verse 28 to 36. Again, that's page 867 in your pew Bibles. So we're looking at the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain. And this is the culmination of what it means for God to reveal himself to men and women in Galilee and in the world. This is the culmination of what it means to be in the season of Epiphany. So we started by looking at the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River. This low point in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And we heard this voice from heaven saying, Behold my son, listen to him. And then we heard Jesus in the plains calling disciples out from the mix. Calling them in the plains saying, To those who hear, if you have ears to hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And now we come to this mountain Where Jesus in all of his glory says, we we hear the Father say again from heaven, behold my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And that's our main point for the sermon today, is that Jesus is God's son, his chosen one, listen to him. It's pretty simple, listen to him. To him, But before we get to that, we need to we need to get at what is Jesus actually saying? So let's consider a few points before we get to our passage. If you turn to verse 20, we see that G, that, that Peter confesses that Jesus is the anointed one of God. Verse 20 of chapter nine. Then Jesus said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter says, you are the Christ of God. So we see that he's right in saying these things and Jesus says to him that the Messiah is going to what? Suffer many things. Verse 22, suffer many things and be rejected and killed. And then the third day he's going to be raised. But but you have to get through the suffering and the rejection in order to get to the resurrection. that's the path that the Messiah, the chosen one of God, was called to the pastor. And then verse 23, if anyone, this is what Jesus is saying to us. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want to save your life, you must first lose your life. If you want to preserve it, you have to give it up first. And this is why on that day, many will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, and he'll reply to them, I never knew you because you didn't take up your cross every day and actually follow me. You just said you followed me and you assented with your mind, but with your heart, it was never mine in the first place. And so I really never knew you and you never really knew me because you didn't know what it meant to follow me in my suffering and in my rejection and in my death. So now we come to this place in verse 28. Jesus has been saying all along for the prior eight chapters leading up to this point. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. When someone hits you on the cheek, give them the other one. Some pretty hard sayings. And there were a lot of people who were following in this great train of disciples. And they never knew him. And so we come to our passage. After Jesus says this, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. A week later, he says these things. Verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, right before this this verse, after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You see, this passage is filled with Old Testament imagery. So it's not just an accounting of what was happening, it is that at the very least, but this accounting of what's happening is replete. With Old Testament imagery, and I can't get into all the pieces, but I want to highlight a few of these things. And in fact, it it should go without saying, but in our day and age, it needs to be said explicitly that you cannot understand the Jesus of the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament and the messianic expectations. There's a tendency in Christianity right now in some circles to say we have to unhitch The Old Testament from the New Testament and be red letter only Christians. And I think that would be very detrimental because you can't understand what Jesus is saying and doing apart from the Old Testament. And so we have to do the hard work. And it is hard work to go back to these Old Testament passages. And the problem is, is a lot of us, a lot of us in Christianity don't really understand or read the Old Testament that much. And so what happens is we say, well, that's weird. And then we just move on from it rather than saying, okay, well, let me, let me think about this for just a little bit. Let me ask a few questions of the text. And I think that when we start to dig, we start to mine the gold that is there. So let me just highlight a few pieces here that are, that are either allusions to the Old Testament or explicitly referencing the Old Testament. First, we see that Jesus leads them up a mountain. And throughout the Old Testament, the Lord leads A representative leader for his people up a mountain, particularly the person of Moses, right? He ascends up Mount Sinai and the elders of Israel are with him. And what happens as they go up the mountain? A cloud descends on them and they are fearful. And so what's the point of that? Well, Moses goes up the mountain to receive from God his words. But there's a difference here. There's a difference here. See, Moses goes up to receive from God his words. They go up to hear Jesus speak. Jesus. And you and I are called to receive Jesus' words and not just the words of Moses. So this starts to kind of hit at the point that Jesus is greater than Moses. Because instead of saying, this is what the Lord God says... God speaks from the mountain and says, This is what Jesus says. Listen to him and do what he says. So Jesus himself is God incarnate of what we see here. Second, like Moses that we heard from the Exodus 34 text that Jason read for us a moment ago, like Moses, Jesus' face was altered. It became bright white, or, or became bright. And then his clothing became white. See, when Moses went up the mountain... His face also shone, but again, we see a little bit of a difference here, don't we? See, the difference is is that Moses' face only shone, but here we see Jesus' face and his whole clothing shone bright white. Again, alluding to the fact that Jesus is greater and different than Moses. But then third, Moses and Elijah show up. And they're talking with Jesus. This is a strange scene, to say the least. Now they don't, you know, Luke doesn't go into the great details of how he knows this is Elijah, how this is Moses. You can just, um, they probably told him, but who, who knows? We don't, we don't know all the details of that. But the question that we have to get from this text is why these two men, why Moses and why Elijah? Well, Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. And there's a lot of pieces here that we could unravel. But that is the essence of it. Whenever the Old Testament is referenced, in shorthand, it's the law and the prophets. And so we see here that these two people, Moses, the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets, they're speaking to Jesus. And they might... If you could kind of maybe be a fly on the wall, I guess it wasn't a wall, but maybe a fly on the, the rock there on the mountain. Maybe you could hear what they were saying to Jesus. Maybe they were consoling him. Maybe they were consoling him because they, like Jesus, were rejected by those that followed him. They, like Jesus, were ridiculed and those that were being ministered to by them were re- ridiculed. They ridiculed them all the time. They said, who is this Moses? Give us somebody better than Moses. Who's Elijah? I'm going to kill him, is what the king of Israel said, right? Maybe they were consoling him. They were saying, you know what? We have been through that. Stay the course. God's chosen one will always be beat up. Maybe they were encouraging him to finish that race that was set out before Jesus. Knowing that God, see both Elijah and Moses, Moses in, in Deuteronomy 18, I'd encourage you to go there later. But Deuteronomy 18, Moses speaks of a future prophet. And what does he say? He says, listen to that future prophet. He's greater than I am. And they, he, he was looking forward to that, that future person. He didn't saw him from a distance. And Elijah in the same story, he's saying, put your faith in the chosen one of God. And, and they, they were looking forward and they delighted in that day. And they were encouraging Jesus because Jesus would go to a garden and he would cry, Lord, take this cup from me. This is too much to bear. So maybe they were just giving him a little a little extra something to get through because you and I can't even begin to imagine the anxiety and the pain that he was experiencing in that moment and that he was getting ready to experience. But we aren't left to a lot of trying to Think through what, what they were talking about Because look at verse 31 What is verse 31? It tells us explicitly what they were talking about Moses and Elijah Who appeared in glory And spoke of his departure Which he was about to accomplish At Jerusalem If you uh, look at this word They were speaking about departure In your pew Bibles there's a little There's a little number Right next to departure You see that? And if you go down to that footnote of departure, it gives you the explicit meaning of that word. What does it say? It says Exodus. They were speaking to Jesus about the Exodus that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot of Greek words that can mean to go out or to leave. Why in the world does Luke use this word Exodus? It's not just because he was looking for a fun word or he's trying to find something. No, there's an Exodus. And what happens in the Exodus that Moses led? What happened at that point? Do you remember? Moses was leading God's people out of slavery to Egypt. And in this time right the the jews were under roman occupation they were in fact slaves as well and they wanted redemption they wanted to be freed from the the thumb of rome and see there's a but there's a couple differences in what's happening here because this isn't just a matter of hey jesus is going to ride on a white horse with a sword in his hand and he's going to he's going to kill caesar and he's going to free us up and we're going to take possession of this land but see that's that's the problem here, isn't there? There's there's a there's a bit of a loggerheads that that the disciples are experiencing because Peter just said, "You are the Christ. You're the one that God had promised was going to redeem Israel." And that's why they're saying, "Are you at this time going to restore Israel, Jesus? Are you gonna are you gonna mount up on the white horse and are you gonna save us? Are you gonna deliver us like Moses delivered us? Because I'm sure that they were probably thinking that, oh." If he's the Messiah, if he's the Christ, if he's the son of David, like he has said he was, then he's going to destroy our enemies and he is going to free us just like Moses freed us. And so they're probably getting really, really excited. But see, this is the problem. That Peter, like all those around Peter, the disciples could not grasp the fact that the Christ had a cross. And the cross wasn't just something really bad that happened. That was the very purpose for which Jesus came. That the Christ has a cross. And they, like us, they, like us, wanted their lives to be devoid of difficulty. You know, you and I may not say that. You and I may not say, man, I really don't want a lot of difficulty in my life. But if we look at our lives, every murmur, every grumble, every every rolling of the eyes, that is a way of saying, "I don't want this kind of life, God. I don't want difficulty, and I don't want suffering, God. It's not fair." How many times have you felt in your heart saying that it's not fair? That I have to go through that. And you and I forget that the way of the Christ is the way of the cross, of rejection, of suffering, of pain. It's not just something that happens to us, it's the very call in which we are called into, in His fellowship. The fellowship of His sufferings is so that we can know how awesome and how good He is and how satisfying He is. But it's here. In this moment of confusion in Peter's life, that God says, in spite of what that looks like, that although it looks painful right now, let me just just give you a little sneaky peek behind the curtain. And let me show you that it's not in spite of the suffering, but it's in the suffering, it's in the humiliation that Jesus is glorious. A lot of times in our theology we can think, oh, Jesus is going to go through the cross so that he can be exalted. No, it's in his cross that he says in, in the Gospel of John that if the Son of Man is lifted up, if he's exalted in the cross, in his humiliation, that is the glory of the Gospel. It's not after the cross, it's in the cross. It's in the exodus that happens in Jerusalem. Did you see the exodus that's supposed to happen at Jerusalem? At Jerusalem. At Jerusalem. And so the Lord says to you and to me and all those who are struggling, he gives us just a little bit of assurance. He says, it's going to be worth it. The cost is great because the reward is great. This brings up a second thorny point for us, too, is that whether we like to admit it or not, we want to control God. We want him to do our bidding. Whether it's the discouragement that won't lift. Or the spouse that won't budge. Or the frustrations you feel when you get a glimpse into what's really going on in your heart. The Lord wants to say, you really want to just control how I operate in your life, don't you? And so when we say not fair... What we're doing is we're saying, God, I know better, and this is what you ought to do. I don't deserve this. I deserve this. I'm going to be in control of my life. So taking that, coupled with the non-desire for difficulty, we start to get to see a little pattern in our own hearts. And so instead of saying, yeah, it's just been a really cruddy day, I'd encourage you to say, why? Why? What has caused you all the difficulty? Is it because you want to control how God is operating in your own life? I'd encourage you to pause and to sit in that moment of discouragement and say, God, what are you wanting to reveal in my own heart about this? Because there's freedom that can be had if you'll just let go go of that control that desire that you know better let's see how do we see that am I just making this up note we, we see this at this tension point in our text and then just a little uh, biblical uh, interpretation thing whenever you see a, a narrative like people speaking that's moving the narrative forward so you whenever you see thing people talking to each other you need to pause and slow down and say what's what's going on here and there's a tension in our text there's two people who have spoken in this text. Look at verse 33. Verse 33. And as the men were parting from Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing. I love this. I love Luke's part here. Not knowing what he was saying. He was saying, but he wasn't. He didn't know what he was saying. You're just blurting something out. You know, you know, in, in one of the other gospel passages, he's afraid, and so he just blurts something out. He sees them going away. So wait, 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 please don't go, please don't go. Let's build a tent right here. Right here, right now. Let's just put a tent up and we'll just hang out. And we can just sit here and bask in this glory, maybe get a tan from all this light. You know, and so he so he's saying, Let's please let's not say goodbye just yet. Let's linger here just a little bit longer. You see, there are moments in our lives when we want God to break through the darkness. We want God to just help us to linger just a little bit longer. And he's saying, you're wanting to linger too long. Do you remember last week I shared an illustration of a guy who is going through Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and there's a step eight, but there's a step nine. And so step eight, you're supposed to list out all of the people that you've offended. And he, and he's, this guy starts breaking down and crying. He's like, man, this is... This is so powerful. This is amazing. He starts crying and weeping. He's like, oh, I've hurt so many people. Have you ever had that moment where you're like, man, I I need salvation. I need someone to save me. And you're overcome with grief because of who you've offended and who's offended you. And that's where we want to linger a lot of times is like in that moment. We think that that's the epiphany. We think that that's the moment when God's going to show up. But step nine is where the magic happens. The magic happens in step nine because you have taken this list of people and you actually go to them. That's the hard work. The crying isn't the hard work. The crying is just the conviction that this is happening. The hard work is actually saying, okay, I want to linger here all day. And you and I, given to ourselves, we would linger in that. But the Lord says, if you want to see me do some awesome miracles Go. Be reconciled to your brother. Go be reconciled to those you have offended. That's the hard work. And that's the work where God will meet you. Not in the crying. The crying is one step. One step. The next step is actually putting feet to what you've been convicted about. And it's too easy for us to want to stay and linger a little too long. See, you and I can think that that's what the Christian life's about, is going from one Sunday to the next Sunday, or going from one conference to the next conference, or going from one moment to the next high-point moment. And the Lord says it is all of these moments that I am calling you to live in and let me infiltrate if you'll see it. If you'll see it. We see we want clouds to descend and we want gold dust to come down from the ceilings. And the Lord says, "Mm -mm, mm -mm. don't build tents that can't satisfy. Don't try to linger here. I have much greater things, much harder things for you to do. You see, this this tension is seen in this second quotation, right? Look at verse 35. After Peter said this, and as the cloud came and overshadowed them a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my son my chosen one listen to him this is the same thing that we hear the voice earlier in Luke and that was where we started right in in the whole season of epiphany we started at the baptism of Jesus when the clouds departed and the dove came down there was a voice from heaven that says this is my Son, listen to him. But there's something that's added here. There's something that's added here in, this is my son, listen to him. That phrase, my chosen one. My chosen one. So where is that coming from? If you have like a, a Bible that has little like um, side notes on it, this is where those are really helpful to go. Huh, I wonder where in the Old Testament this is referencing. Well, this is a reference to God's choosing of a king. In Psalm 89, verse 3, it says this, You have said, this is talking about God, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And we could just kind of breeze over that. That God says my chosen one is a, a king who will last forever. But we find out later on that this chosen king is is a chosen servant. In fact, he's a chosen suffering servant. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one. You can also look at Isaiah 49. These are the suffering servant songs where where you see all of this glory happening, but it's through a suffering one. But I think it really hits the point even harder when you look at what Luke himself said. With this phrase, "My chosen one," he's not just picking it out, and God isn't just saying this just to say it. What is God teaching us by saying "My chosen one"? We hear it again in Luke 23 at the very end of this gospel. We hear this phrase, "The chosen one of God." Where do we hear Luke 23 verse 33? And when they came to the place that is called the Skull, Mount Calvary. There they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, like Peter said, if he is... The Christ of God and if he is his chosen one let him save himself the soldiers mocked him as he hung on a tree and is this not what Jesus is telling his disciples a week before when he says take up your cross daily and follow me you see the redemption you and I hold so dear could not have happened if Peter had won the day if, if if God had listened to Peter and said, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good idea, Peter. Let's build three tents and let's just hang out here on the mountain. Your life would be so much smaller if God listened to you. I look at my own life and I think about, man, I wish you know all the, the difficulties I've had. And I'm like, man, if God would have listened to me, I would have been in a much cruddier place. See... The Lord in his mercy will not listen to that, this temporary lingering that you and I want to do, because that's not where God's best work is done. It's not done on the mountain. That's glorious. And the Lord certainly does pull back the veil just for a bit so that we can see, wow, Jesus, he's humble, but man, he is glorious. And so it's going to be worth it. I have to trust it's going to be worth it but it's in the coming down from the mountain that's where the real life is met that's where our lives are finding their meaning because our faith was never meant to end with just us and we have this weird thing going on in our in our thinking a lot of times is that it's just me and Jesus and Jesus saved me and I'm so thankful that he saved me and that's glorious don't I'm not shirking that at all but see we got a couple Exodus 34, Luke 9, with our 2 Corinthians chapter 3 passage. This is what Paul's talking about in the 2nd Corinthians passage. Unlike Moses, who would cover his shining face, what, is, what did Paul say? He says, We have behold, we have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and we're being transformed. Right? At Calvary, God reveals that his glory is not after the crucifixion, but in the crucifixion, if you'll hear it. It's not after the suffering of your life and after the difficulty, but it's in the difficulty. It's in the suffering. 2 Corinthians 3, I'm just going to say it again, verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. See, intentionally talking and ministering to others can and it should be hard work. It was intended to be hard work. But, brothers and sisters, your salvation was never meant to just end with you having a great moment with God at a conference or on a Sunday morning. Your life was meant to be so much bigger and greater. But it requires you to go out and talk and be. And love people and lay down your life for other people, actually, not just verbally talking about it. A lot of times we can think, hey, I'm talking about talking to people about Jesus. No, no, it's actually in the same have you heard about Jesus? Do you do you know God? It's in those moments that the Lord says, I will be glorified in those moments, not in talking about it, not in thinking about it. You have a ministry. See that? The very last, uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, you have a ministry to other people, whether you like it or not, (laughs) whether you want it or not. God's given you a ministry, and what are you doing with the ministry that he's given you? Are you squandering it, keeping it to yourself? Maybe you're stifled because you're worried about what other people will think. Have you ever considered that worrying about what other people think makes you their slave? You, you can't open your mouth because you're afraid of what they're going to say to you. You have enslaved yourself to other people. And the Lord says the freedom that you long for comes by knowing that you're already accepted by Jesus. And so, yes, the world may condemn me and hate me. But the Lord is my strength and my portion forever. Man may fail me, but the Lord will never fail me. And yes, you will have friends and family who will despise you and not like you because you follow this one. But there's freedom there. You see, we too often get wrapped up in our own issues. I mentioned a little bit about this last week. But getting wrapped up, and it's not to say those issues don't matter. But it's when we... Turn them over in our mind over and over and over again, thinking that we can solve them. They're just building. We're just building tents, just building tents to linger and say, Lord, I'm not going out. I'm not coming down from this mountain. I'm not going out of this room until you fix this problem. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll never have enough ministry in in the sense of ministry to ourselves, because you and I are very needy people. And so the answer is not found in fixing yourself. Consequently and ironically, it's actually ministering to other people and speaking to other people about this glorious, saving king where true liberty is found. Yes, the Lord has provided such an epiphany for you to see his glory. But it's when you and I go out and do the hard work of reconciliation that Paul talks about here, that's where the Lord really will meet us. If all we're doing is coming on Sunday, or going to a conference, or living moment to moment to moment, then we've missed the entire timeline of how God wants to operate in your life. It's in going out. That's why we end with a with a commissioning at the end of our services. It's in going out that we actually begin to see God. Because left to ourselves, we're going to want to talk all the time to ourselves because it's safe. But it's when we go out that we can also be ministered to in ministering to others. That's the call. That's the call that, that Jesus is trying to get Peter and you and me to see. And that's what Paul is talking about. That this ministry of reconciliation It's in ministering to others that you feel the freedom of the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is. That's where true freedom resides. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have been kind to each one of us to open our eyes to see Jesus' glorious Not in spite of the crucifixion, but in the suffering, in the crucifixion, we see this glorious King lifted up, exalted, enthroned over all nations. Father, forgive us for being enslaved to the opinions of others, being fearful of others. Instead, give us the. The courage that comes from knowing that you have loved us and you love us in spite of whether we open our mouths or not—that's the beauty of it all. It's that you love us when we fail you time and again, you love us still. Give us courage, give us boldness, give us and, and convince us that this glorious King is worth talking about and worth ministering to others, even when we don't get anything back. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.